Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Firaz Rashid, founder and CEO of Hook. People tend to focus on their loudest customers. And I actually think the biggest problem is the quiet customers when you're running a SaaS business are the ones that are going to leave. And the hard thing is without looking at the data, you don't know who your quiet customers are because they're quiet. When I was at Dynamics, over the course of the couple of years that I was there, we started with very simple metrics. We looked at adoption. We finished with more complex metrics. And what we were able to find was that in none of those metrics that we looked at did sentiment make a positive or negative difference to whether or not someone renewed. Yet what we saw was that with engagement, there was a direct correlation in every number. If that number went down, the customer churned. If the number went up, they spent more money. This is Firas. He's a tech entrepreneur on a mission. And one of his passions is customer success. He was CTO and Head of Customer Success EMEA at AppDynamics and helped it scale from 170 million to 550 million ARR in just two years. Prior to that, he was the Director of IT at Credit Suisse. Today, Firaz is the CEO of Hook and he's there to realize his mission to change the way customer success is run. Hook essentially empowers customer success teams with accurate revenue predictions and intelligent, actionable insights to secure renewals. It takes the guesswork out of their day-to-day and helps them focus on spending their time where it matters. And this inspired me, and hence I invited Firaz to my podcast. We explore what is broken in the world of customer success. And Firaz shares his experience around what it takes to answer the question, what makes customers renew and what makes them churn? He shares his journey about building a SaaS business that changes the way customer success is run and creates impact. In this conversation, he explains the counterintuitive lessons that he learned and how that helped him to create defensible differentiation from the start. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, why so many SaaS products suffer from the value gap, i.e. what the customer paid for on day zero is far away from what they're getting. Secondly, what you can do differently in your product to minimize churn 
and to increase net revenue retention. Thirdly, why you have to slow down the sales process in order to speed it up. And finally, the big lessons learned to create messaging that's humanly instantly understandable. Hi Firas, welcome today on the podcast and thanks for making the time available. Hey Tom, great to speak to you as well. It's one of those podcast interviews that I've been looking forward to because of what you do, your company Hook. First of all, I love the name Hook. You can explain to me like how the name came about, but first of all, it captures my attention. So we're going to talk about that in the next 40 minutes or so. And to get a little bit started, to give the audience an idea about who you are as an entrepreneur, if you would have to describe yourself in two or three characteristics, what comes out? That's a good question. I think I'm very driven. I think as an entrepreneur, I'm very hands-on, but I also quite enjoy leading people. I think it's the thing that I actually enjoyed the most. So those are probably the couple of characteristics that I would say. And I think all of those things have shaped my career somewhat, or maybe my career has shaped those things. And all of them obviously culminated into me founding my own company with uh, yeah. Hook. Yeah, exactly. Makes sense. Very good characteristics to have as an entrepreneur at the end. And I specifically also like the leading people part. What are you passionate about? What drives you in day-to-day business? I think right now, this journey that we're on at Hook seeks to kind of solve two problems. I think the immediate problem we solve is how do we make customer success teams more empowered to do their job and be able to focus on the right customers when they're doing their job? How can we predict which customers they should be focusing on, what actions they should take, and what the results of those actions would be in terms of revenue? I think the bigger picture as part of that is this like significant shift towards customer success becoming an increasingly important role. And having spent eight years buying software, several years being in customer success, I used to lead customer success at one of the fastest growing enterprise software companies. I'm actually really empowered about being part of that shift into bringing customer success teams at the forefront of software. So that's a pretty inspiring mission. I think it's a mission that's been underserved, underestimated in terms of the impact and probably the most important thing top of mind right now. I completely agree with you. I mean, with the whole notion of SaaS, it has become extremely important. I also see that too many companies are still saying that their customer success is really important, but not really acting upon that. Our technology can likely help make a superb difference there. So you already, I mean, the passion was the question to kind of normally lead me into the question of like, what was the big idea? But well, maybe to phrase that, make it, make it a little bit different in terms of how I phrase it. What sparked the idea to found Hook? Yeah, good question. I like this question because I think the experience that I have was so deep in embedding the idea of Hook. I spent the first eight years of my career buying a lot of software. I used to lead IT operations for a large investment bank. I led a fairly sizable team of about 150 people across the world. And so we bought software because it would make their lives better. We bought software because it was useful for the bank to be able to do a better job. We churned software We got software renewed. We managed to get software to change people and change the way they do things. I think that gave me this like really unique perspective on what is it that takes a company from buying a piece of software to ultimately getting value out of it. And I then went on to lead customer success at a company called AppDynamics. So we'd just been acquired by Cisco for $3.7 billion. And at the time I was running a book of about $100 million in ARR 
and realized that we actually weren't doing that good of a job at using data for customer success and decided to spend the next three years changing that. So we went from this reactive approach where we would spend, you know, every three months, call a customer, see how they're doing and spend most of our time with our biggest customers into a proactive approach where we use data to tell us which customers to spend our time with. And our success was amazing. We ended up significantly increasing the run rate, the return from our existing customers, and ultimately our net revenue, which led me to starting Hook as I realized that it's actually really difficult for customer success teams to use their data to know who they should be speaking to and what they should be doing. Fascinating. I completely agree. I mean, specifically, if you look at the SaaS world at the end, just an assumption, I think a lot of your customers are companies in the technology world, software as a service companies in these type of companies, or is it broader than that? They're all B2B SaaS companies. So we only focus on B2B SaaS companies that sell software as a subscription. And largely because that's where the value gap is. What the customers paid for on day zero is far away from what they're getting. Yeah, exactly. And companies that do well, they get momentum. They bring on customers at a speed that they didn't predict they could be. And as a consequence, you don't see if everything falling through the cracks. So where do you start focusing on exactly? And I mean, uh, it was a quote from Jeff Bezos from Amazon. He was not focusing on the customers that he needed to bring on board and make more happy. He was actually focusing on the customers that would become advocates for them. And every company at the end has different ways of dealing about it. What do you see from a technology perspective? What type of companies benefit most from this? By the way, I just want to comment on the Jeff Bezos quote. I believe in that approach very strongly. I think I'm going to go a step further. People tend to focus on their loudest customers. And I actually think the biggest problem is the quiet customers when you're running a SaaS business are the ones that are going to leave. And the hard thing is without looking at the data, you don't know who your quiet customers are because they're quiet. And so, yeah, I think it's not only your most valuable ones, but how do you actually go and find your quietest ones? I'll give you an example for this. When I was at Dynamics, over the course of the couple of years that I was there, we started with very simple metrics. We looked at adoption. We finished with more complex metrics. So we put every metric around customer engagement and we built a machine learning algorithm. And what we were able to find was that in none of those metrics that we looked at did sentiment make a positive or negative difference to whether or not someone renewed. So some of the happiest customers were people who'd never used our product because they were still in the honeymoon phase. Some of the least happy customers were highly engaged within our product and spent some of the highest amounts with us because they knew the flaws within the products because they were using it so much. Yet what we saw was that with engagement, is someone speaking to your teams? Are they using your product? Are they engaging with your salespeople? Are they buying more services? Are they attending marketing events? There was a direct correlation in every number. If that number went down, the customer churned. If the number went up, they spent more money. And this is a similar thing to what we see at Hook today across our customer base. So I know I completely missed your question, but I wanted to jump no, in. No, no, this, this, this is true. Quote. Yeah, I should have prepared this quote a little bit better. But you're getting to the essence of that. And sometimes it's very hard to see on the surface what is right and what is wrong. If customers are saying nothing, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's hard also to see if customers are saying something. Is that an entirely emotional reaction or is there some logic around it? And I think this is like, Very, very different in the B2B world and in the B2C world. So for a whole bunch of reasons, if you don't like Instagram, you can use TikTok tomorrow. It's your account. You're the decision maker. 
The problem in B2B is if you don't like the products you're using, you're probably not the decision maker. And the decision probably has to revolve around some sort of ROI or investment. So if you don't like a product, but 300 people are using it, the question is, are you going to go and spend 300 people times the cost of change per head to go and change it? Probably not. And I think this is where things start to get a little bit skewed because people don't necessarily correlate the idea that if someone's got an opinion about something, it may not necessarily mean that the business outcome is going to change. And obviously you see that in sales, just because someone wants to buy something doesn't mean they can buy it if they don't have a business case, an ROI, the CFO signed off and all of the rest of the things you usually need in an enterprise sale. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what is the opportunity to get this right? If the world starts to, and we're going to talk about the concepts of your solution, uh, how you help make a difference, but if customer success teams are empowered to focus their time on the right customers, what happens there? Do you already see a, a big shift between the before and after with your current customers? Yeah, I think you can see it in a lot of different ways. And let's start with a macro view. The way that SaaS companies are valued has changed. If you yeah. looked at valuations five, six, seven years ago, they were almost only driven by sales and growth in sales. If you look yeah. at valuations today, You only need to look at Snowflake where 180% net retained revenue gets you a 200x valuation. Every other company gets a 10 to 20x valuation if you're around 100, 105% in net retained revenue. That difference was like unheard of five years ago. You see a second differentiation, which is you go and raise money from a VC. They used to ask you about your net retained number seven, eight meetings in. Today, they'll ask you about it in your first meeting. In fact, Today, I find that companies are so obsessed with this number that they hire customer success people before they've even got revenue. So I find SaaS companies these days will hire customer success people at seed stage or at the very, very early start of their product market fit in series A. When I first got into customer success, if you hired CS people at series C, series D, you were doing well. So the, fundamentally, the economics of SaaS have changed. And that's put customer success teams right in the middle and the center of this. Yeah. Because as CS teams, as CS leaders, we own the ability to be able to influence that net retained revenue number. And so all of a sudden, what we've got is a scenario where if you're able to go and establish what are your leading indicators for customer success, what are the customers you should be focused on, i.e. who are the ones that are likely to either increase or decrease in, in their spend with you, and you can action those at scale, then all of a sudden, you've become the biggest driver of value in the company. And I think this like this shift is right in the middle of what Hook is at. So what we do is we help our customers with identifying exactly those things. What are the behaviors that result in revenue change? How can you accelerate those behaviors? And we help our customers with being able to increase that net retained revenue with little effort. Great. That's exactly also the point that you made earlier. Like, How can you bridge that gap between buying software and getting value out of software. That's the sort of thing. And I completely agree with you. I mean, I wrote a book about that as a matter of fact, because that's what it's all about. You know, if customers see the value and feel the value every day, and it is something that they keep getting excited about and they feel that it continues to exceed their expectation, they become your biggest advocates. And that yeah, creates a flywheel that you cannot even budget for. So next, what I want to do is to kind of go through the journey. You started the company early 2020. That's where the funding came in. And that's where you started to develop, as you said, before we started the podcast. In that year, because I know this space, one of my customers is actually in the customer success arena. 
it's a pretty busy space. So what were the specific choices that you make in order to create something that was going to stand out and made a difference? Yeah, it's an easy question, but it strikes a lot of emotion. (laughs) I came into Hook with a very strong idea about what I wanted to build. I built it before in-house. So I had this view that the dominant thing you needed to focus on in order to build a great product was focusing on the data that came from the product. And this is what everybody else in the market had decided to ignore. So other companies included some element of product data, but usually they looked at very simple metrics like license utilization. They would spend a lot more time looking at other things such as NPS or customer satisfaction surveys. And the reason is that it's easy to do that. It's easy to send out a survey. It's really difficult to pull in two and a half million rows of product data, make sense out of it and show it in a UI in a way that a customer success person knows what they want to deal with. So my opinion around this was we have to stay true to our approach in fixing the problem, even if it means that we have to do a lot of hard work to start with. And that we also decided if that was the hardest bit of the problem, which was we want to ingest every mouse click of product data for every user in order to be able to provide a machine learned predictive outcome, then we should do the hardest thing first. So the way that we approached everything was to look at the idea that we should pick design partners that really have this problem. We should pick data that is complex. So when we started to speak to design partners that didn't have users of their products, for example, we decided to leave them because we wanted to start with a product that had user data for every single user and really yeah. get to the point of building that architecture. Yeah. So that was our starting point. And our second point was that we wanted to be able to make sense of that data for our users because I never believed that asking customer success people to come up with things like health scores themselves made a lot of sense because they didn't have access to data teams to help them to do that. And if they did, often those data teams were stuck in more complex problems such as product build or or other areas. And so we wanted to be able to take that heavy lifting away from them. And I'd been through that journey myself, which is in my journey at AppDynamics, we spent $2 million on the data problem alone to figure out which accounts we should be focused on. So yeah, our approach was focus on the hardest problem first, differentiate by being predictive. And I think that was super helpful. It's been really great now to see the results of that and getting it into customers' hands and getting them to drive results out of the back of it and help to strongly differentiate in the market as well. Let me make a small interruption here. Firaz just made a critical remark about how they've created defensible differentiation by focusing on the hardest problem. It would have been very tempting to start with the easy stuff to get the product out there in an attempt to get traction, but they didn't. By focusing on the hardest thing, they were not only able to solve some very valuable problems in a way where they exceed expectations, they also provided them with the right foundation to keep kicking out features that wow their customers. And that's where accelerating momentum comes in. It's a typical trait of a remarkable software company. They focus on the essence, aim to be different, not just better. And with that, they build new value possibilities that move the needle. This creates fans, that drives desire, and that creates momentum. You can master these traits as well. The first step, simply read my book. I've made an electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will start within the next 10 minutes. Back to the interview. Well, I mean, you bring up a very big topic. Too often we decide that our roadmap is going to be filled with the kind of the low-hanging fruit, do those things first, get something out to market, test it, and end up with something that everybody already has already done because it was so easy to do. 
Doing the hard things first is bold and it requires guts to go that direction. We also felt that we could deliver the easy stuff at any time. For example, we chose not to do things like task management or reminders early on. We chose not to do things like account flags, which is a functionality where you can give an account a red or an amber or green flag, because we felt we could always do that. We felt that we could deliver that within two or three weeks. What we couldn't do is go and build a platform with the easy stuff and then try and re-architect it with a completely new architecture that was now built upon users, products, licenses, instead of an architecture that was built upon tasks and playbooks and reminders and so on. Very strong points. And I mean, the discussion I have with so many CEOs about creating defensible differentiation, just that word defensible means already that no one can do this as well in the next sprint. (laughs) Right. And in order to have, yeah, in order to create something of value that is similar to what you're offering, they have to almost start from scratch. So those early decisions are crucial here. Great point. I mean, I already have answers to a couple of other questions, like the one, like, what did you say no to? And you already mentioned a couple of those. The decision that appeared to be really important early on, that was also, I think, answered. What was the hardest not to crack here in respect to doing the hardest thing? I mean, was there any specific thing that was, yeah, particularly, yeah, I mean, almost like we have to go and, yeah, and go a different direction? I think if you ask any founder that question and their entire career doesn't flash in front of their eyes, (laughs) then I'd love to get their advice. There was a lot of things that were really hard. There was a lot of things that we did wrong. I feel like I've done everything wrong that I could have done up until this stage. I'll maybe talk about like things that I wish I knew earlier that became easier once I'd experienced them. So in terms of deciding what features of product to build, so Something we did really well early on is as quickly as we could, we built something and put it into the hands of a customer. And then we began to iterate on it and we put it into the hands of a second customer and a third customer. And we decided to do that before the product was ready, knowing the gaps and the challenges that we had. And I think you get two types of feedback when you put a product in the hands of a customer. And I think you get more of this type of feedback, which is, I would love to have this. It would be great to see this. And I think we got a little bit caught up in the nice-to-haves and some of the visionary stuff and some of the stuff that we thought would be good. The second type of feedback, and you really need to push for this, is the type of feedback that says, I'll be really annoyed if it doesn't do this within a month. And we didn't manage to get to the second bit for a while. And I think part of it was because of the type of questions we were asking And part of it was because our design partners wanted to support us and they were helping us, but also they were starting to see growth constraints, which is where they became frustrated with the gaps in the product. We built the best product when people told us what they wanted and the date that they wanted it. And we started to find that multiple types of companies in different geographies with different scales and sizes were asking for the same thing when that happened. And those things just started to drive our utilization differently. I wish that we'd found out a little bit more about that a bit earlier on and spent a bit less time wasting on the things that we thought were nice and customers told us they were good as well. But I think it's a difficult nut to crack because I also think you've got to be careful that the customer isn't always right and you have to come into building a differentiated product with a strong thesis where you will say no to certain things. And so, yeah, I think that whole thing is really hard. We tried early on to bring in a product person. I actually found that that didn't work out. And having founder-led product for as long as possible 
it's super helpful. I actually find it's part of the job that I enjoy the most and I don't mind working on it in evenings and in spare time because I actually find it almost quite cathartic from some of the other chaos of founding a business. But yeah, figuring out what to build and when and how to translate what people say into what they really mean is tough. It is. It's super tough, exactly. And yeah, to kind of read between the lines and really dig deeper in terms of what they really mean, because it's so easy to just take orders. But to right. understand what's really behind it is super, super... Um... So what was a counterintuitive lesson that you learned that made a difference for you? Customers who pay Things, you money give yeah, you better something that feedback you... than customers who <laughs> do it to help you out. Like that was super obvious. As soon as we asked our initial design partners, we asked them not to pay. We thought... And we're not going to ask them to do that until we have an amazing working product. And we're a data platform. So we needed data to architect what we were doing. And we had some amazing companies that helped us out in the early days. But it's a favor. It's a favor from them to you. And therefore, they're not obsessed with everything being perfect and everything's working. As soon as we changed the conversation to a commercial conversation and said, how much would you pay and what do you want to see? With every single design partner and with every single prospect and with every single customer that we acquired after that, we suddenly got just very honest and very direct feedback and we started to land our positioning. That was counterintuitive because you thought that if you were doing someone a favor by giving them a free platform, that they would help you out by doing that. So yeah, that was something I wasn't really expecting. I've learned the same thing myself with my business. It's completely right. There needs to be skin in the game. Yeah. And if there's skin in the game, then they feel it. Something is, they feel that they are, that you sort of owe them something or, yeah, I mean, there's just more... You have attention, don't you? Like, And I don't mean that in the negative sense because I've made more friends in customers here in you know a year and a half of being at Hook than I have in any other role that I've had, at least in a customer-vendor relationship. But there is a tension that it creates when you know that it's a mutual business transaction and that you know that there's an output. And as I said, we immediately... When we converted our first design partner to a paying customer we immediately got a set of requirements that were what needed to be built within the next 45 days. We built it, we put it in front of our other design partners and it changed the way that they used Hook. I remember people telling us repeatedly that it felt like they were using a completely different product. And we've managed to like recreate that again and again and again. And it's that that you want to get to. Yeah, that's so true. What type of features were they where they that started to build yeah, that engagement and those type of reactions? Were that fixing? I mean, was it fixing things that were missing or was it really creating, yeah, I call it peaks in the software that are about kind of amazing moments? I think they were a bit of both. I felt that they were fixing things that they were missing, but I think it was clear once we gave them to customers that they saw a different product. It's funny, as a founder, you'll know this, and I'm sure most people listening to the podcast will have experienced this. The stuff you spend your time building is never the stuff that people are impressed with. It's always like the stuff that you spend 10% or 15% of your time and is the easiest stuff to build that everybody goes, wow, which can kind of be frustrating because you can spend (laughs) a year building the architecture that means you can show it on a UI and then, you know, a month's changing the UI and all of a sudden it creates a real engagement with the user. The type of things we did were when we first built our products, we had a predictive score. So what we do is we ingest everybody's data. We look at how people behave on your product and how they behave in terms of spend. And we'll tell you what a company's likely to spend and when and how to improve that. We're pretty accurate. We have a score accuracy of about 80 to 93%. But the thing that people wanted was they wanted to be able to see more depth. They wanted to see history of that. They wanted to see how it was made up. They wanted to see how it changed. And so 
there was an immediate pull on that. We spent a couple of months rebuilding that out. We put it back into people's hands. And all of a sudden, it changed how people perceived the product. So they believed yeah. much more in the predictive algorithm and what the predictive algorithm was saying. And we continued to get a pull on that. We then introduced actionability into the product. So we introduced an integration into outreach where people can select a list of disengaged accounts, or they can automatically say when an account becomes inactive, then send them a sequence. And again, it changed how people use the product because they no longer saw it as a place to go and check data. They now saw it as a place that gave them like meaningful insight into doing stuff. And they were able to go and take actions off the back of it as well. And as I said, some of those things were relatively easy to build. I mean, it took us a month end to end to push out our ability to send an outreach sequence, but it requires all of that hard stuff on top or below it where you built all of the architecture, the information and so on to be able to actually action it. Yeah, so true. Kind of memories come back from my life in this role as well. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, I mean, I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effects, which at the end is about the 10 traits that define those software companies that we start talking about and we keep talking about. The one question I always want to ask is, what do you believe are key traits to build a software company that lasts, but that actually creates momentum through word of mouth? I'm obviously going to firstly say that having great usage data and having people that use your platform every day is really important. It's something I believe, it's something that I gave up my career in and started my own company in. It's something that we see now in the data that we see. And ultimately that's going to drive your revenue and your growth. I also like to focus a little bit on the people and the culture side, because I think that companies can forget how important those aspects are. In my own experience as a founder, I was surprised at how many people were surprised that I focused on culture on day one. We had a set of values before we had our first employee. We'd spent a decent amount of money investing on our careers website, on a careers video, and on a whole bunch of careers-related things across the internet before we had too many employees. Because from the outset, I felt that if you build a business with a good culture where people can work hard and they're fairly rewarded and they want to be there, but they're treated with respect at the same time, then you have built the basis and the foundations of a business which is going to grow infinitely because you built somewhere where hardworking people want to come and work. And so I actually personally believe that is the most important trait early on in a business. And I think that people underestimate it. And I think yep. that if you underestimate it, it becomes really difficult to fix later on. You know, I've come from a background of working in banking and enterprise software. And the number of times that I've seen someone say, in banking especially, that we need to change the diversity ratio or we need to change the way that we do certain things on the culture side. And it's really tough. I mean, when I led a team of 150 people, when, you know, 135 of them are men, it's really difficult to turn it into a 50-50 team. Those types of things are things we've made really active choices about. You know, my first hire was a female software engineer. She's now a lead engineer and probably one of the hardest working, if not the hardest working person at the company. 
we were conscious on building diversity on culture and respect since the outset. If we saw behaviors that didn't feel right, we called them out straight away. We didn't wait for the end of year performance review. So yeah, I think these types of things are really important early on. It's hard to fix later. It's yeah, spot on for how you answered that. And I completely yeah, agree with you on that. And I can also see it from your website, how diverse you really are. It's amazing yeah. if you see the pictures. So well done. It really makes a difference. One of the people that is part of my tribe, Quintus Wilms, runs the company called Share Council. I mean, there's so many ways to get teams to build a great culture. And once you see the effect of a great culture, it's almost like a one plus one equals three effect. Because of the commitment, because of this questionnaire effort that comes out, because of the better decisions you make, because of things that you know different people see, because they don't own it, but still have a strong opinion about it, that's super important. So well done on that. Even in the early life of the company, I mean, yeah, good to start with that. So when you launch the product and a little bit on the sales side, what is your big takeaway in, in terms of selling this? What did you learn there? Because I mean, you're creating something that's like on the edge, as typically people say, you're creating something that has never been done before. But on the other hand, customers also often don't see or understand what's the art of the possible. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's funny you mention they don't see what's possible. I think the first thing we learned was how to get our messaging into the right place. It just took us some time to do that. And I wish I had a science for how we approached it, but I think it just took a lot of people saying no to us until we realized how to say something for someone to say yes. And part of that was also pricing. So for example, we learned something, I'm going to share something actually that we learned that I haven't told too many people. We learned something quite interesting on pricing. We started by saying we will give people a unlimited price to start with so that we got a handful of customers in and then we'll come up with a pricing model after that. And people hated it, which was weird because I was like, at least you can see how much this thing costs and you know you're not going to get over. We changed it to another pricing model, which is we price based upon the number of customers our customer has and people loved it. Now, I always wanted to do that because I wanted to align the way that we increased our revenue and the way that we became successful with our customer success. And historically in this industry, people used to price it per user. And the challenge with doing that is that you need to have more CSMs for me to make more money. And therefore it was counterintuitive. And it was interesting because when we found the pricing point and the pricing wave that landed well with our customers, it was just immediate. People immediately said, I get it. If I have more customers, you make more money you ingest customer data. Therefore, if I have more customers, it costs you more money. And it's easy also for my CFO to account for it because he just needs to type one little percentage number on a deal. And that's the end of figuring it out. But it took us a while to learn that. And as I mentioned, it was counterintuitive because I thought that offering someone all you can eat was going to be more obvious. What I learned about pricing in that is that half of it, if not more, is completely psychological. It's not the maths or the science or so on is actually just what does someone believe that your product should be priced at and are they psychologically happy with it? And therefore, actually, you just got to keep iterating until you get it right. The other thing I think we learned in our go-to market was to slow the sales process down. I'm not a sales founder. I think people think I'm a sales founder because I'm used to doing a lot of presenting and a lot of pitching, but my real comfort zone is in problem solving and on the product side. And therefore, I've had to learn to sell. And I think as other founders will know from their own experience, it can be very easy to start and just become a, here's my product and here's a set of features. Would you like to buy it conversation? 
And you kind of have to learn the hard way that a sales process is a much longer process. And so we just began to break it down. We detached the discovery call from the demo. Those became two separate calls. We customized the demo. So when we did our demo, the customers would see their logos, their statistics to the point where I remember someone said, oh, you've already gone live with us then. How did you manage to do that? We started to slow down how we go from there to negotiation. It became hard in COVID. Historically, I've always been used to doing my career in person. And it becomes harder to be able to build those relationships when you can't just go and grab a coffee every couple of days with someone. And so we kind of started to learn that. But yeah, slowing the sales process down actually helps speed it up. Cool. Yeah. Love that. I haven't heard that one, but now that you explained the rationale behind it, it's so true. And I mean, a very good point about disconnecting the discovery from the demo. I actually don't call it demo. I call it proof of value, which then it's a logical thing to do because it's the discovery informs that proof of value and how you go about it. And the point that you made about messaging and pricing and psychology behind it. I mean, I ran pricing at Unit 4, so I know exactly what you mean. User pricing is possibly the worst pricing that is there for everybody because it doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help the vendor. It doesn't help the customer. Mm. But indeed, when you start kind of connecting things to a metric that they understand, and for you, that is the number of customers. I mean, I have been dealing with governments, for example, number of citizens makes a real good sense there. In the student world, in the education ways, it's number of students. So as long as they feel it's fair, they can tie it to something that where you can see the effort and the value really is a good thing, then everything is fine. It's just a story in their head. Yeah, you have to connect with pricing. You have to connect the problem that they're solving, where they see value, and where is there a mutual success. And you have to do that in a way which is like humanly immediately understandable. If you can do that, then people get it straight away. For example, I think user-based pricing works in certain markets. If you're selling, for example, software that helps make salespeople more efficient in a market where salespeople are quoted, you can actually solve all of those things because if you can prove that you've got 10% efficiency of a salesperson and they have a quota of say a million dollars a quarter, a million dollars a year, it's easy to relate that back to value and in a way that people understand it. Just it's hard to do that if you don't have that relation per user. And I think that often, you know, especially in our space, when you look at user-based pricing, it's counterintuitive because you're actually stopping people in the company from using the product. Yeah, true. Yeah. as I mean, I already see a blog coming up about the topic in the cell because so many people don't see that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we saw that in the past with government, you know, they actually have a tendency to bring the number of people down that are employees. And as a consequence, the only thing that can happen to your pricing or to your customer lifetime value is it goes down. Yeah. No matter, yeah, how, exactly. good you, no matter how good you are. Very interesting. Let me see, looking at the time, What are you most proud of achieving so far in the short life of the company? I am incredibly proud that we have a product that adds value to our customers. I'm incredibly proud that we have people using it every single day. We have a ticker in the corner of our office that tells us how many people have used our product in the last seven days. And we do use hook on hook. I'm also really proud that, you know, I started this company because I wanted to solve this problem. But I also started this company because I wanted to build an awesome workplace for people like me, people who like working hard, who like working with other people. I'm proud of the culture that we built in doing that. As you can see behind me, we're in an office in central London. I think it's a place that people really enjoy being in, that they can learn in, that they can develop. And certainly for me, it's a place where I, you know, I love working with the team that we've got every day. And 
we're very thoughtful about the way that we run our culture. You know, even in these early days, I think we're at employee 12. We send out quarterly surveys on fixing things like benefits, on fixing things like what is it that we should do in terms of socials. And on those, as well as kind of direct feedback, we get pretty high levels of engagement from the team. Yeah. They are, they are important at the end, you know. They're seeing it as part of the family. And yeah, now they're talking about what is you most proud of. I mean, they're proud of working for a company that does these type of things and that they can make a difference. That's a really key thing. From your experience as an entrepreneur and the lessons that you've learned over time, what would be a do and possibly a don't that you would share with other entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs? So my do for other entrepreneurs would be get your product in the hands of people as quickly as you can. I know everybody says that. And I mean, just to give you an example of what we did, the very first version of Hook that the very first person used didn't even have a database. We had a processor generated a flat file, which was a JSON file that our front end consumed and put it into a UI. And our front end was developed by someone who at the time hated front end. Now we have an awesome front end lead. But it was because we wanted people to tell us what we were right about and what we were wrong about. And I think the more that you delay that, and we see this in new features as well, the more that you completely miss out the things that actually would make a difference on whether someone can use your product or not. So get it into the hands of customers early, find different types of customers to get feedback on. And we find that what people do and what they say are usually different. So we watch product behavior as well as listen to what they say. The don't. I think we did a really good job at hiring a team of doers and holding off before hiring leaders. And I think that this is a point of contention across many people in different areas, but we always said that we wanted to do a job before we hired a leader to go and do that. And I think that it worked really well. And I would really strongly encourage other founders, before you bring in a leader into an area, I don't bring in a leader into another area, make sure that you know what the job is. And so we've done it everywhere. We did it in engineering. We hired a software engineer before we hired a head of engineering. We did it in operations. We brought in an operations manager, Amelia, who became our head of operations. We did it in sales. We've hired SDRs before we're looking at hiring sales leaders. And actually in the sales side, we did the job ourselves. So we split it between myself as the founder, my customer success person who came with me from my old company and the operations team. And I think that's really important because you actually don't know what you're hiring for until you understand it. I know that can be hard. I know there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of external pressure from people for you to be seen to be hiring leaders, especially from the investor community, especially from other people that want to join. But I think it's important that it goes slow because also leaders set the culture for the rest of the company and for the team. And therefore, if you've hired someone that's doing the wrong level of job, then you may go wrong. And actually, I would add to that, the first leader we brought into the company was our head of engineering. And I remember one of our angel investors, who's now in their second startup, the advice he gave me at the time was, hire for the job you need now, not for the job that you need in two years. And I'm also really glad that we did that. We actually had two candidates at the time. One was someone who'd led a team of 10 people and we were looking to build out an engineering team of about five to 10 people. And someone who, his last job was building an engineering team out of 50 to 80 people. And I think it was kind of three levels above the engineering team that was actually doing the work. And I'm glad that we did that. And it's an approach where we've kind of consistently taken because it can be very attractive to go and hire the big name person that's got tons of experience, but hasn't done the hands-on job for you know five, six, seven years. 
And actually, I think the most important stuff when you're in the earliest days of a startup is to get stuff done. You know, for us at every stage that we look at it, we think in the same way. If I hadn't hired a team, then we wouldn't be around. If we hadn't built a product, we wouldn't be around. If we don't get our go-to-market right, we won't be around. And for that, we need executors and the leaders come to scale. So yeah, I think I would like double down on that if I was to do this all again. Very good advice. I like that. The saying, I think, is it in one to zero or zero to one? I'm mixing things up today. Do the things that don't scale first. And I think that's what you've done. Like really nailing it, understanding what you really need, feed dirty, and from there on grow and optimize it. And then indeed leaders come to scale. I like the aspect as well. Yeah. Really it's good. funny how many, we've ended up having so many generalists within the team unintentionally for that reason. We've had my customer success hire does all the demos on my calls. It was never an intention. He just ended up being great at demoing because he understands customer success really deeply. And so he's become kind of my counterpart in sales on top of the customer success side. Our head of operations has been helping gather customer feedback. And that was specifically because she obviously knows the products very well, but she's detached enough from the day-to-day, what do customers use it for? She doesn't know the specific requirements of each customer that she could be really objective in getting that feedback. And those kind of things like really help in the earliest days because there's so much to get done that like being able to move people around from one role to another day to day is super helpful. Exactly. You need people with different hats on. So, well, thanks for this. Where can people go to find out more about Hook? I mean, we talked about Hook for a good time now. Where can people find out more to see what it can do for them? How can they get in contact with you? I would encourage them to add me on LinkedIn. My name's Firaz, it's F-I-R-A-A-S. There's not many of me on LinkedIn in the customer success space, which helps. I'd encourage people, if you're in Sasta in Barcelona, come and find our stand and come and have a chat with me and the team. And if you want to find out more about what you should be using in terms of data and metrics, go to our website, that's hook.co. We published a customer success metrics report where we surveyed 108 leaders. It's free to download, you can download it instantly. And we get really strong feedback from people looking to build out early CS teams. So visit our website and find out more. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for yeah, this inspiring interview and yeah, for sharing all the wisdom and the lessons learned, being vulnerable about a couple of things. I really like where you're going with the company. I like the way you go about it. Yeah, good luck for the future. Great. Thanks, Tom. And this ends my conversation with Firas. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Firas Rashid, founder and CEO of Hook. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode.
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.